You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com, now available on the Stitcher Radio Network. I have to say that uh, because we're in a partnership with Stitcher, so we're on the Stitcher Radio Network, coming to your and your smartphones, Androids, iPhones, yada, yada, yada. The official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com, and I am your host, Troy Goodfellow. And with me tonight are two of my regular panelists, freelance writer Julian Murdoch. Hello, hello. And freelance writer Rob Zachney. Good evening, strategy gamers. See, that's better than the whole cats and kittens thing. It's way better than cats and kittens. Not as jazzy, but... But no, we'll go with this. Evening strategy gamers, good. Uh, Last week, I teased a topic saying we were going to be mourning the passing of a friend, and yes, the original topic was to be three years without Computer Games Magazine. Uh, I was hoping to get editor for life, Steve Bauman, on the show to talk about it, but his schedule did not permit it. He is hard at work at Gas Powered Games to get the Xbox 360 version of Subcom 2 out. It comes out on Tuesday the 15th, uh, Tuesday the 16th, sorry, which is tomorrow. So he's hard at work on that, and also West Coast time. And he also said, besides, no one would be, who would be interested in that anyway? Oh. I think, yeah, I know, exactly. How about gonna, all of us former employees? Exactly. <laughs> He could come and point his Jacques Hughes finger at Julian for killing his magazine. It would be hilarious. There you go. It would be awesome. So I understand that he hasn't he he hasn't really wanted to talk much about it to to me at least since it happened. I mean, I I don't know that he's really had big long conversations about you know the maudlin hour at CGM. Well, I, this wasn't going to be you know talking about you know the death of it, but about its life and its meaning for strategy gamers. It was a magazine that started as Strategy Plus. And covered, you know, war games in depth and seriously in ways that, you know, print as, and much of the online community has uh, avoided for a very long time. Uh, so I think it would have been a good show, and I think it still will be a good show. So Steve, still always open to have you on here. You were my first, uh, professional editor. Love to have you on to talk about, uh, how great you were to me and so many other writers in the business. So that was going to be our topic, and, uh, he couldn't do that, so we scrambled for other topics, and it was a bit of a mess. So if this show sounds a bit disorganized, it's because I'm surrounded by people who can't agree on what nights they're available. <laughs> uh, when Julian's available, when Julian's available, so Tom's not. When Bruce is available, Julian's not. When Rob I'll never leave you, Troy. Yeah, but you don't... You're worried about board games. Rob knows nothing about board games. So it was just... Got to be an absolute mess. So we're going to talk about a whole range of things uh, that have been going on in strategy gaming. Some of the stuff coming out of GDC, especially uh, some news about Civilization V, uh, some speculation on it, because Julian co-wrote a great feature in Game Pro Magazine, which I read last week. Uh, Julian Bernard, which just so recently was an oxymoron. A great feature in Game Pro Magazine. How the <laughs> how the times have changed. Well, uh, wow. John Davison is doing a great job over there uh, with. A game pro, and he deserves major kudos for putting together Absolutely. really interesting features and uh, getting together some good writers. And I look forward to hopefully shaking the man's hand finally and meeting him at PAX East uh, next week. Gosh, is that next week? No, that's not next week. Thursday, next Thursday. Next Thursday? Oh, my oh well, God. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Next, I, thought, uh, I thought you meant this coming weekend. No, no, it's next week. Okay. Yeah, it starts next yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we are we going to do a little thing for the listeners? Because it's all about the listeners. Are we going to like like have coffee with them? 
It's all, all about the listeners. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about that um, at the end of the show, uh, and also some more next week when the plans are finalized. Uh, what I'm going to be putting to assembling for our listeners and all the dear gamers out there uh, who listen. Uh, but let's start with talking a bit about uh, Civilization V, which was announced a few weeks ago, uh, actually about a month ago, I guess now. And has it been that long? I, it's been about a, it's been about a month since yeah. it got announced officially. Yeah, and lots of new new previews coming out of uh, GDC. And Sid Meier, of course, gave the keynote at GDC, talking a lot about um, the psychology of gamers and how civilization. His designs tried to plug into the psychology of gamers and what gamers are like, what they respond to, what they don't. Uh, Julian, in your work on the preview, I mean, uh, Jason Wilson, I did did I believe did most of the grunt work. Uh, in the interviews and stuff. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, he did the grunt work on the Civ 5 part in yep. that he actually went and sat down with John and and did the walkthroughs. And right. I mean, you can consider that the grunt work or the glory part. I wish <laughs> I had actually gotten a chance to go sit down and actually see the game and play with it for a little bit. I didn't get that chance. Instead, right. I only got to talk to Sid Meier for a couple hours, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what like a, bird a that is. trade for me. Uh, so what can you tell us about, first, what did Sid, for people who haven't seen the feature yet, uh, it's on your newsstand, well, yada yada. The, the, big, the big changes, and the ones that I think as gamers were most interested in, are, are, are in some ways they sound like such a simple list of laundry items that uh, it, it sounds almost silly, but it's hex-based, and combat's really going to matter, and you're really going to have ranged units, but that's pretty big deal. If you're a hardcore Civ fan, those three things alone kind of make it an entirely different game, right? So hex-based and terrain matters. So like mm-hmm. taking a hill, being in the forest, sort of classic strategy gamer stuff. Uh, you know, those those are part of virtually every war game anybody's ever played. But they right. their new idea for Civ. But are um, they? I mean, it didn't, I mean, you know, the other games, the train always gave, the other train always converted a bonus, though, didn't it? I mean, it was like 50% bonus if you were holding a forest in Civ 4. Yeah, there were always, there were always defensive bonuses. Uh, but one yes. of the, some of the, yeah, but some of the big, one of the big changes is, you know, uh, archers on a hill get like a range bonus or yes, something. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, well, and archers on a hill have range. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's that's a big change right there. So, you know, what you know, what what the designer clearly is going after here is to try to bring um sort of basic core strategy game combat into civilization, which I mean even even Sid Meier and Soren Johnson have have publicly acknowledged that combat has never been a strong suit of the civilization franchise. It's I- always been a bit of an afterthought. And really since the very first civilization, combat has sort of resorted to Here's my army stack, and I'm going to go beat on your cities until I own it. That right. was pretty much the entire combat system for Civilization in a nutshell, right up until today. And the whole point here is to turn that on its head and start making things like, uh, well, what's in my front line? Because you can't stack units anymore. And what do I put in? You know, what do I bring in for reserve? And what kind of ranged units do I put in the second le- You know, the second row and. Uh, you know, how do I use now that I have a hex based system? Can I actually get flanking bonuses? Right? These are all completely new right. concepts. Um, well, that have they confirmed they're going to be flanking bonuses? Uh, have they confirmed they're going to be flanking bonuses? Because that would be I'm a huge. Sure. That would be a huge change. Uh, That'd be awesome. 
Well, I'm pretty sure that they did. I'd have to go check my transcripts. So that that means you have to have things like like, like frontage and stuff. If they actually change like the direction of your archers and stuff, right? Well, I don't think that there's facing. If it's no facing, how can you have flanking? Like, how do you know which one of your archers are pointed? Uh, depending on which way you're attacking. Like if you've got like well, like in D and D flanking to some extent, where if you've got somebody on what both sides of you, yeah. you're flanked. Yeah, but if I'm not attacking, if I'm just standing there. Then, well, then you're, you're being really attacked. Flanking. Then you're an idiot. Um. <laughs> I'd be interested if if they do do that, that would be a huge change in complexity. What I thought was interesting in the article, uh, the GamePro article, when we go back to um, the military system, was uh, the lead designer is John Schaefer. Right. Uh, John Schaefer, twenty-six years old. Yeah, twenty-six or twenty. Is he twenty-six or twenty-four? He is a child. He's a, yeah, he's a very very young man, uh, and he says he's inspired by Panzer General. Which came out in 1994. How old was he in 1994? <laughs> One or yeah. something like that. Um, yeah, no, he clearly was a late to the party gamer in that yeah. sense. And and when and you know in in the interviews with him, you know he he sort of makes it clear that he sort of discovered these things the way a gamer now, you know, who's 16 years old, would be looking back a generation and and finding games like. Civilization Two, for instance, right. and saying, "Oh my gosh, this is amazing!" Right? So, th- those are, I think, uh, you know, it's coming from a place of love, not a place of nostalgia. And I think that that actually makes me feel good about it. I'd be a little bit more nervous if this was somebody who was, you know, fifty years old taking over the franchise, right. who had like a deep abiding love for all of these, kind of in a retro way. That would make me more nervous. Yeah, I mean, as much as I love Bruce Shelley as a designer, if he was to come back and say, I want to bring Panzer General to civilization, I'd be a little bit more worried. Uh, exactly. Very exactly. Um, as brilliant as his Avalon Hill designs were, and his great sense of game design, he's, he's, I think Schaefer is coming, I think you're right, coming from the right place. Uh, not nostalgia, but you know, here's something cool. Um, but he's young, he's got some really neat ideas, and um, something. the other big theme in the feature which I wish I could link everybody to uh, because it's not online, it's in print. I recommend you go and get this Game Pro magazine, big picture of scary George Washington on the cover. <laughs> George Washington, you know, 10 feet tall guy. Um, is that they want, he wants, he, despite the change to the combat model, which are significant, no stacking, hex-based system, uh, ranged combat, just ridiculous changes as far as in scope and what it's going to mean for changing the core gameplay. He also wants to uh, move it in a more diplomatic area, uh, improving the diplomatic interface, removing a lot of leaders who have been seen traditionally as you know aggressive leaders, and replacing them with people with more subtle diplomatic focuses. Uh, the example is taking out Mao as the Chinese leader, replacing him with uh, Empress Wu Zetian, a Zhao Dynasty empress known for her diplomatic prowess, uh, which is, and and taking out Saladin for the Arabs, known for his military talents, and replaced with Harun al-Rashid, the great caliph uh, known for the glories of Baghdad and the Arabian Nights and all this stuff, making the leaders, uh, one person said, Schaefer's, Operating mattress seems to be no more jerks. Napoleon's a jerk, and Montezuma's always a jerk. Hate Montezuma, worst Civ four leader ever. But yeah, and, just, and and but. and they're rolling that all the way through. I mean, I actually worry about that a little bit because part of what they're doing is 
they're pushing this in a more grognardian direction already, meaning mm-hmm. that they're targeting this clearly more towards people who are already Civ fans. And by taking out, I don't know, Tokugawa and putting Nobunaga in, yep. right, you're, you're now narrowing it down even more and more by, by removing touchstones that people uh, could associate with, right? So now, like, America gets one leader. They get Washington, right? So you yep. don't get Roosevelt. You don't get Lincoln, right? So you're dealing with one identifiable figure. For a lot of gamers that are not hardcore strategy gamers, they're going to read the box on this, and they're going to be like, who? Yeah, I mean, they still love, they still love Gandhi. Uh, but yeah, man, that's like sure. the poster oh, style. They gotta have Gandhi. Wait, yeah. though, was, were the leaders ever part of the Civ sales pitch? Though I, I don't know anyone who got into Civ because oh wow, you can you can play as Gandhi or I can be Lincoln. No, I mean they weren't they weren't part. But I mean, what was the sales pitch? Right, you clearly had a game that people could identify with in a certain way, and and the, I, there were always certainly... there were always pictures of the leaders. I mean, they always had. I mean, even the original Civ box, to turn the back, and there, oh, there's, there, there's Napoleon. I mean, you can't. Right, there's the panoply of leaders, and and part of what has made the franchise so much fun over the years, sort of, it has really been that sort of personality you get from playing a certain civilization. Right. You know, we can argue about whether or not the strategic differences between uh, individual civilizations and, in, say, Civ Four were really that dramatic, or sure. whether they were kind of token. But th- when you're playing it as a single-player game, certainly the personality came through, and that was part of the charm. Right. Well, and, and so. I suppose that's that's something I'd be curious to see, because my, my fear when you're talking about like getting rid of the jerks is that, I mean, there's a reason you hate Montezuma that much, right, Troy? I mean, yeah, like, he's a jerk. He screwed you in every game he's popped up in. Um, I mean... There's a lot of leaders where I have this, you know, in a weird way, like this personal relationship, right, with the civilization leader, because every time he shows up, I kind of know what I'm in for. And so the, the, the game is full of these great, you know, uh, Tokugawa, we meet again. You know, it, it has the, those associations. And I do worry that if the diplomacy is a little more of a blank slate, you're well, going I, to... I, I don't think it's going to be a blank slate. I mean, every leader is going to have their priorities, and they're going to have their interests. And they're take, getting rid of the trait system. You're not going to have a bunch of creative, organized, philosophical, uh, spiritual people. Uh, but each AI is going to have its priorities, its goals, its desires, pretty much fixed with, you know, some variation based on circumstances. So it's not like these are just going to be, like in, in the original civilization, just names. Um, so the really personalities attached. I think the expectation is they want AIs to be more than uh, the monodimensional. I hate this, therefore, I'm, I, I, Isabella, different religion from Isabella. She's going to hate you. You can't suck up to Isabella if you've got a right. different religion. She's going to kill you no matter what. They want a little more subtlety uh, there. Well, but but we talked about this on our diplomacy show yeah. that we did, right? I mean. To some extent, the holy grail of AI is to have a diplomacy system that you actually believe. And and I, I'm very, very skeptical that we're going to see that in the next five years, honestly. Sure. I mean, I think diplomacy is fundamentally a human thing. And when, you, when you're not dealing with somebody who holds a grudge because they're just pissed off at you for no other good reason, you're not, you're not going to get real diplomacy. And so I, I kind of don't buy into the 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 sales pitch coming out of Firaxis that this is really going to be a heavily diplomatic game. I think it's going to be a heavily combat centric game. Um, and, and I'm mostly interested in how this evolves multiplayer. We don't really know much yet how right. that's going to work out, but, but that's my hope is that what this is, is a nice simplified combat system 
which is a lot of fun, uses a lot of the Civ stuff as hooks, but but gives you a great multiplayer experience. I think that's that's what the market would buy, and I hope they build that. I don't have a lot of hope for the AI, not because I know anything bad about the AI, but <laughs> you know, look who designed the AI for Civ Four, right? I mean, that was Soren Johnson, arguably one of the best AI designers out there right now. I don't actually know who's designing the AI for this. I'm presum- presumably John Schaefer's designing the AI for this. I'm sure they have somebody. Uh, I know people at Firaxis do listen uh, to the show, and I'm sure they can fill in the comments and say, no, it's so-and-so, before uh, their wonderful PR queen slaps their hands and tells them to shut up. <laughs> hey, and I'd love to be proved wrong, right? Yep. I mean, I would love nothing more than for them there to be you know, some amazing diplomatic engine in here that, you know, like the likes of which we've never seen before, because that would be revolutionary, right? That would right. be something we really don't have in modern strategy games. And they're taking out religion. Yeah. I don't, that doesn't bug me too much. Doesn't bug you? That bothers my wife. Really? Yeah, it does, because she sees religion as, because for Civilization Four, religion is such a big part of the gameplay. Uh, if you love Civilization Four, one of the big things that you love doing is discovering a religion and finding rival religion and expanding it. Uh, I can certainly imagine the game without it, and they have their reasons for getting rid of it, but considering just how essential it was for Soren Johnson when he introduced religion to have that touchstone to history, to say, well, they, he didn't invent a bunch of religions. When I was at a convention he spoke at, a Civ convention, he said, you know, they could have just invented a bunch of religions, religion A, religion B, religion C. They could have done the easy route and done a bunch of, a bunch of religions nobody even nobody cared about. You know, you discovered Zoroastrianism. <laughs> uh, but they didn't do that. They went with religions that people recognize uh, in one way or another, except for maybe Taoism, which probably not a lot of Civ players are that familiar with. Uh, it was really central for saying, you are in history. You are discovering history. You've discovered Christianity. Um, is really something. And removing, yeah, but, I mean, whether but it, it's gameplay implications, just it's a design choice. You you can argue with, you know, what does it actually add? Exactly. If, that that's my thing, and and I feel like I there there is a bit of an ethos, I think, in the Sid Meier design mentality, which John is clearly a student of, mm-hmm. that you, you you don't add complexity for complexity's sake. And if he's starting with a blank slate, and you're talking about really revamping the combat model. And making a more strategic territory control type game, then I think you're going to have to ditch a few things. And I probably would have put religion at the top of my list of things to ditch. Even for espionage? No, I was gonna, I was going to say spies were the other one. <laughs> I was, as I was coming into my mouth, I was like, maybe not the top of my list. I'd get rid of the freaking spies first. What a waste of time. You hear us, Mr. Schaefer? No more spies. <laughs> or at least do them better, damn it. So a lot of the previews coming out of or CF5, coming out of GDC, uh, a lot of my colleagues taunting me over Twitter over the things they'd seen. Uh, I hate you all very, very much for seeing it before I did. Um, and on one other thing on Civilization I want to talk about that surprised me when I read it, and I forgot where I read it, I'll have to look this up and post it uh, at the bottom of the podcast, is no more transport ships. Yeah, I didn't. I never got that out of the interviews for the... Uh for the uh, for the article I wrote, so that was a surprise too. I mean, that I'm sort of like, well, what? How are we going to actually move anybody around? I don't know what their answer is going to be. I get the sense of doing it. The whole Rise of Nations Empire Earthway. Each ship, each unit is its own transport ship. Meaning right. So you, you need just to have drag your uh, infantry over into the water, and they load up into their PT boat. 
Yep. Which right? I guess would mean you would need more, you would need a larger navy to protect it since you're not protecting just the one unit. Hmm. So. Well, and if the no stacking thing works on waterways too, that's going to get crowded fast. Depending on how big the maps are. So we also don't know. That's true. That's true. We also don't know that. They look pretty though. They look damn pretty. Yeah, this is an amazing looking game so far. High hopes. High hopes for sure. I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether it feels like a Civ Meyer civilization game. Right? What do you I mean, mean by that? Well, there's a certain, I don't know, there's a, a certain vibe to a Sid Meier game, right? And some of that is is minor stuff in the corners, like what it looks like, and some of that's just kind of how it was built from the ground up. I would argue that Civ Four kind of veered away a little bit from what feels like a Sid Meier game. Um, and Civ Revolution came back, right? Simplified things, really got down to the core, um, had a certain, whimsical is the wrong word, but a certain light quality to it that I actually really appreciated, right? I mean, it's less hardcore, but, but I, I sort of associate those things with Sid Meier's name on the box. So it'll be interesting to see whether Schaefer, who's a really young guy, is, you know, full of his own ideas and drives this thing in a look and feel that really is unique to what a Schaefer game looks like, or whether the fact that he's sitting a cube away from Sid makes this feel more like a Sid Meier game. Cool. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I mean, we don't even know what crickets, it does. Crickets, No, we don't, even know, we don't even know what it does. Ten minutes ago. We don't even know what a John Schaefer game is yet, do we? Exactly. That's my point. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, I'm kind of kind of jealous. So, what else came out of GDC, or are we not done with talking about Civ? Well, I mean, did you uh, read the notes on Sid Meier's uh, keynote address? I did, and uh, they're did kind of run? fun. Um, like I read just a bunch of tweets coming out of that, but I haven't read a full write up. That's one of the annoying things with not being a GDC is you often only get the partial, either a partial write-up or a bunch of incomplete information. So or there's really a lot bad of bad video. Yeah. yeah, really bad. I haven't even seen any, any video of it. Is there any video of it? Of Sid's thing? I don't know. I got, I got. There were some good quotes on the Gamma Sutra link. That's that's where I sort of got what what little I could out of it. So do you want to summarize his main points? Because in fact, it was about the psychology of gamers. What yeah, really so he, had drives, a, he had a couple, really I don't know whether I can summarize it because I didn't yeah. hear the whole thing in order, but the points that I got that I thought were interesting that jive kind of with my couple of interviews I've done with him, you know, he talked a lot about the things like the winner paradox, which is that, um, you know, we, well, we all want games that are challenging. We want games that uh, make us think that are difficult to master yet. We actually kind of always want to win too, but we don't want to feel like we're being allowed to win. Right. And and that one of the biggest challenges of game design is finding ways to have uh, what, what the quote said was a satisfactory conclusion that doesn't always involve being the guy on top. And I think that's a really interesting insight. And I've actually seen more and more games where losing doesn't feel so bad. Right. Being at the being second place is actually not the end of the world. Um, in strategy games in particular, I think that's a very hard outcome to achieve. In a in a story based game, you know I have I don't I don't want to d- 
deviate too far off of strategy games, but something like Heavy Rain goes all the way to the other side, where you can lose Heavy Rain deliberately all the way through and still have an extraordinarily satisfying game experience or whatever you want to call that experience. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly in a two-player, a multiplayer strategy game, it's pretty hard to create a really satisfying experience for the loser. I can't really think of them. Rob, can you think of times that you've lost and felt self-satisfied? Um, you know, I'm racking my brain for instances. I mean, you know, maybe it's... I've actually been okay with losing Relic RTSs, um, just because usually um, the act of losing involves lots of dramatic, you know, last stands and giving up ground inch by inch, and it gets really bloody and intense. And so I think I don't know. Losing, losing can be surprisingly fun in those games, uh, but I'm not sure. Oh, um, you know, EU three actually losing. I'm really okay with. Well, you that's... Do you do you lose in EU three? Um, well, not recently, but I have. <laughs> <laughs> it it that my my first couple games weren't. Hugely right. successful, but um, no, lately, lately it's it's kind of a victory lap through history. But there was a time when I lost, and it was awesome. Yes, there are always a few of those at the beginning of EU three, and then it's I find once you've learned the system, it's generally a, I will take a temporary loss now for a major victory later. I will give Lithuania, you know, half of the Ukraine. That's fine. <laughs> Because I'm expanding east and I'm coming back. Right. Well, I know, will own China. Yeah. Yes. Actually, though, I think that's relevant, though, because, you know, like, I can think of an EU3 game where um, I'd been doing really, really well, and then I lost my heir, and then my bastard Aragonese allies um, used their royal marriage with me to claim my throne. And I got plunged into a war, and by the time it all was said and done, I was France, and I'd been reduced to about a quarter of the size of the empire I'd started with. <laughs> and I haven't heard France used as a, as a verb before. I love that. <laughs> I did use this as a verb. I said I was France. No, I thought you said I'd been Franced. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was France. Yes, I, I was Franced. I lost. Um No, so, so anyway, though, I, I, I had this complete debacle unfold in the middle of my game, and... In 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 civilization, and Sid, Sid I think talked about this in his in his talk. Um, in civilization, when something really really bad happens, you reload. A lot of players do, at least. Yep. You know, the first setback, you're like, well, the hell with that, and you reload and you go on with your game. You know, and don't let that bad thing happen to you. If I have you Montezuma free? and Al- I have Montezuma and Alexander as if they're my neighbors. Screw it, I'm reloading. Oh, right. So I, I'm just saying, like, there's all those times in Civilization when when it's sort of like, you know, I, I certainly know I've quit at the first sign of adversity sometimes. I just don't feel like dealing with that. And a losing game of Civilization is not a great deal of fun for me. EU3, I can get totally screwed over. Um, but I'll just roll with it because, it, you know, it can be exciting to struggle. It can be, it can be, but I mean, it, this is another point that that Sid had in his talk, which was this idea of like the mutually assured destruction compact between the player and the designer, which is that ultimately, uh, you know, the 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 player they have to trust each other, right? And the designer at any point can 
choose to make the game suck and go off the rails. And the player at any point can just choose to stand up, turn off the game and never come back. And, and that there is that sort of, that trade-off that has to go back and forth where you have to be conscious as a designer of not creating situations that really are just going to suck for your players. Right. Right. And, and so making like even a losing experience fun is part of that. Right. I mean, there's, there's losing and then there's just feeling like you never had a chance, but kind of got sucked in enough that you wanted to finish anyway. And those, particularly in multiplayer games, those are very unsatisfying. I actually, with Demigod, I sort of got to a point with the group of people I've been playing with that they all got so good that there was no, there was no catch up feature left in that game that was going to make any difference for me. And so within five minutes of any given 25 minute game, I was, I just stopped having fun. There was no point. And it wouldn't, the game didn't end. It wasn't that I lost. It was just that I could see the writing on the wall and I knew the game well enough to know that it was over. Right. Now, a couple of uh, my colleagues commented on some the interesting... The ones that you hate and told well, to go die in a yeah, fire? Exactly. <laughs> now, some interesting, had some interesting uh, criticisms of Meyer's talk, and I'm not quite sure how valid they are, uh, but I thought they were interesting. One of them said that what Meyer ended up seeming like an advocate of is of the all-have-won-and-all-must-have-prizes attitude that you see in the public schools. That the important thing that the player feel like he's making progress all the way through and giving little bits of candy all the way through until he wins. Since the player wants to win, uh, you may fool him into thinking he's being challenged, but the important thing is that the player comes out on top. Well, I, I understand why they had that criticism. I mean, he kind of does sort of talk about, I mean, part of his thing also, part of his talk also was about sort of the the continuous reward cycle and all of those things and the application of, you know, really almost child psychology to the game environment. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, interestingly enough, one of the other little snippets I saw was, was, um, Gabe Newell's interview he did with Steven Totillo, where he was talking about, well, you know, the next big things that are going to happen in game design are really about behavioral science and things like, uh, you know, measuring people's excitement states and being able to change the game on the fly based on your assessment of that, right? I mean, that all starts to sound somewhat scary and Orwellian, but then again, these are things we're doing to have fun, theoretically, well, right? Hang on. The, yeah, I, I have real problems with that criticism of the talk. I mean, <sighs> just give me one moment to... There we go, okay. Um, Control your age, Rob. Come on. Okay, I gotta choke that bile down. Okay. Um, first of all, I don't. I don't really think that's what. That's really what he was saying. I think what he was more interested in is again player psychology. How are players going to perceive their play experience? You might say, "Oh, I want a game that's going to be you know merciless AI and you know cut me no breaks and level playing field. It's going to be pure strategy. It's going to be chess." Okay. Well, how many people you know really love to sit down and play a really difficult opponent in Chess Master, for instance? You know, how rewarding is that to have the computer kick your ass because it can crunch the numbers? Um, and I think one of the things he was getting at in this talk is players are really sensitive to perceived inequality. And perceived yeah. is the key word there. Even rational, smart people who think they want a completely, you know, fair level playing field, even those rational people will start to see malicious intent in random outcomes, in outcomes produced by just the application of the game's rules. And that's what you want to avoid. You don't want gamers 
convincing themselves that the game is out to screw them over. And then, even though it's all fair, they're not having fun anymore because in their head, and that's, you know, their perceptions are all that matters, you know, the game is just screwing with them and playing unfair, and they quit. Right. And and this gets back to, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of, of, of Raph Koster's uh, theory of fun for game design. I know not a lot of people are. I know that they, he has... He, he, he's, he balkanizes people theories of game design, but, but one of the things that he puts forth in that book, which I think is a brilliant book, um, is the idea that, that fun is really this continuous curve of mastery. Mm-hmm. Right? That's when we're having, as gamers, we're having the most fun when we're feeling like we're constantly just playing above our heads and succeeding. Right. And then all the setbacks need to be built towards those moments when we feel like we're we're just getting that edge of mastery. Right. Which is why very few games last forever, because right. we either get bored of them or we master them to the best of our abilities. And that's where we stop. Right. It's why so few people play chess for their entire lives religiously, because for most people, they reach sort of a, a certain mastery point, generally fairly low. And that's kind of where they're like, OK, that's fun. If I find somebody who's exactly at my level, that'll also be fun. But you you end up in a deep pool. And I think strategy games really suffer from that. Well, and just one other thing I'd, I'd add on to that point, you know, for, yeah, behavior, the behavioral science thing does sound a little scary, but you have to remember, that's how, like, that's how Portal was designed. Um, you know, if you listen to the commentary on Portal, you know, okay, that's not a strategy game, forgive me. Uh, yes, but if you, if you listen to the commentary tracks on Portal, I mean, every single puzzle, has been tested and tested and tested. And one of the things they, they mentioned early is that um, there's a problem in shooters with getting players to look up. Players are horribly unaware, usually, of what's above them in the level. Um, it's just a quirk of the way people play shooters. So what they did was they gave you cues to make you look up for the solution to certain puzzles. Um, and, I mean... You could you could say well then you're just giving it to me then you're just then you're just you know throwing breadcrumbs out there and letting me find them and you're making it too easy and if I'm smart enough to figure out the puzzle um, then I should be rewarded and gamers who can't do that you know should be punished and they should get stuck <laughs> um, but nobody you know done right nobody walked away from Portal saying well that was that was dumbed down um, people people liked it because it had been tested to be sort of it had been te- it had been made into a game that gamers could play enjoy feel challenged by and feel satisfied by exactly and i don't think that's a i don't think that's a black art i, I agree the other criticism that one of my colleagues made of uh myers talks is very impressed by the talk uh but said that from where he sat it looked like meyer was not trying to move uh the practice forward that he was happy keeping games pretty much where they were. Very traditional, but not advancing the art. Uh, the, you know what? That sounds like, I mean, okay, send the hate mail to rabbit at like rabbitcave.com. This sounds, that's a classic, like, indie game designer boo-hoo whining comment. I'm sorry. So, so he wants to make games that are fun, that people will buy. God fucking forgive, right? I mean, really. I, I have no tolerance for that whatsoever. Is he talking about using the latest and greatest technologies to do things that nobody's ever done before? No. 
And there are plenty of people out there that will do that. Right. But but come on. I mean, uh, criticizing a guy's keynote for that, who is clearly an icon of the industry and designs a certain kind of game in a certain kind of way better than anybody else. Uh, I don't know. I have, I have very low tolerance. You'll control your age now. Anyway. No, uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think that's. I don't think that's a real good criticism. Especially, I mean, first of all, Sid Meier's he's, he's making strategy games, right? And I, I don't know. I, I think that right there puts him on the side of the angels. And I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I also don't think. I think strategy gaming in particular tends to get criminally overlooked by the very sorts of people who have these arguments about what is the best way to move the art of game game design forward. And it always focuses on shooters, action games, you know, RPG hybrids, whatever. Um, and yet, the conversation is strangely silent when it comes to strategy gaming. So, I don't know. I, I But that doesn't surprise me. I mean, it, and I, I don't get... That doesn't work me up, right? It, it, it works me up a little bit to hear somebody get upset about Sid's talk for not wanting to, I don't know, what does he want to do, use the Move controller for the PS3? I mean, come on. But So that doesn't get me too worked up. But, but some of that actually is part of why I love strategy gaming so much, which is that you know, you're dealing with a fairly limited set of moving pieces. The whole idea of strategy games is they, they kind of should be things you can hold on to in your head, right? And And... Uh, my opinion is that the best strategy games are the ones where the most interesting things are done with the fewest number of moving parts, right? And that tends to lead me towards abstract games. It tends to lead me to games that have, uh, you know, zero-sum balance, you know, where where you're not dealing with sort of random complexities. It, t- it leads me to games that have limited amounts of randomness in them, et cetera. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm part. That's part of why I like strategy gaming. So, any other uh, big news out of GDC you want to talk about? Uh, I wasn't there. That was the big... I mean, did you see the headlines? Julian Murdoch fails to attend. You know what? I wasn't there either, and I really missed it this year. It sounded like it was a very good... It was really the, one of the best attended in many years. It, it sounds like it was very well run, too. I mean, the comments from Soren were that, you know, they sort of nailed everything. Like, yep. no lines, everybody got a seat in a the room they wanted to, but there weren't any big empty rooms. It sounds like they kind of nailed the whole strategy of running that conference down. Yeah, it's hard to do to run a conference of this size, and uh, I'm glad that they did have such huge attendance, one of the best in years. Now, one of the things theme that's come out of the talk, and it's something that I've talked to with a few of friends of mine uh, in the development field and also some of like, my peers in game journalism, is, well, it's a threat on quarter to three about it, um, and there's the, the, the coming war uh, between... Uh, Zynga and the world. Facebook games. <laughs> uh, the whole Facebook social gaming movement uh, kicked off by you know what some of my colleagues and some of my friends in development thought was a very somewhat ungracious, I guess is a nice way to put it, speech uh, by uh, one of Zynga's employees when he accepted an award for Farmville being I- the best social online game of the year. And that this was, in many ways, the open expression of a lot of tension that people had felt uh, throughout the conference. That there was this feeling that either the Zynga people were were gate crashers, that they represented uh, the whole design metrics 
refined to almost an evil degree of how can we squeeze another <laughs> 0.5% profit out of the lemming-like nat- parts of human nature. Um, I said to one of my uh, acquaintances that it's there's not that that Sid Meier is in many ways the, the great grandfather of Zynga because one more turn is just as psychological as pressing your next little button uh, on Farmville. I think there's something to that, and it both uh, both prey on certain psychological urges. Now, Julian, you just finished another game pro or you just published online another game pro article of yours about uh, Facebook uh, games, speaking to Mr. Right. Meyer and Soren Johnson and. Uh, Brian Reynolds, who are right. heavily invested who, in this. Well, and Brian Reynolds, who now heads up Zynga East, which is their real game design studio somewhere in your neck of the woods, somewhere in the mid-Atlantic, right? It's in the Baltimore um, area, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 look, I understand. I can completely imagine. I wasn't there, but I can completely imagine the big swinging dick award acceptance speech coming out of the Zynga guys. I mean, it's not a big stretch, right? But then again... These guys are making more money than God, right? And we're all sitting here complaining about From the evil, Julian. From- we're all sitting here complaining about the death of strategy gaming, right? We've been, mo- we've been moaning about this, and, I, and I'll put myself in this camp, moaning about this forever, right? And here is a company that has built a huge portion of their revenue on what I think are fairly inarguably considered strategy games. Now, we can consider them crappy strategy games, Games designed to the lowest common denominator, whatever. But they have, you know, they are fundamentally a kind of strategy game. And they've gone out and they've hired people like Brian Reynolds, some of the best strategy game design talent out there. And they've clearly recognized that this is a big part of their business going forward. And we've got folks like, you know, Sid Meier and Soren Johnson who are saying, hey, you know what? These are some, these are some amazing enabling tools. Now, you know, to that, that Zynga gets up there and is a little bit big swinging dick and ingracious or, or however you want to refer to it, I find totally believable. Um, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to defend that, mm-hmm. but I think that that's what happens when you get a sea change in the industry. I mean, you know, when, when people started designing for consoles, we had the same arguments all the time, right? Um, so, I don't know. I, I don't. Have, I have a hard time getting worked up about it. I think it's good competition, not bad competition. You think it's good competition, not bad competition? Yeah, I, I think. I think people being upset because Zynga is making more money than God and is. Yeah. See, here's the argument that I'm getting from my developer uh, acquaintance: that the issue isn't that Zynga is making more money; it's how they're making more money. It's that it isn't really about game design. Uh, that. Even if Brian Reynolds makes, you know, the best Facebook game ever, uh, Rise of Nationsville, or whatever, <laughs> um, that in the end, the fact that, you know, lead designer at Zynga isn't the same as lead designer at EALA or Relic. It's actually just, it's one title among many. It's a big company. Um, that Ultimately, what they're going to say is, well, this is a great game, but if we take this game rule out, we can increase profits by a tiny smidgen. Now, when I spoke to Brian Reynolds about Facebook games, the fact that he could refine a game uh, forever was very appealing to him. You know, what works? What do players respond to? And you can test it on half the population by allowing it in some accounts and not in others. See what works and what doesn't. This is all very appealing to someone with Brian's sense of design. Right. Ultimately, the question 
becomes. And uh, this is something that uh, other people have talked about, Jesse Schell, Chris Hecker. Uh, what is the final outcome? Is it Does the game suffer because you can get that last little bit of profit out of it? Is there any real sense of game design going on here? And if there isn't, that's like a big giant argument against microtransactions is really all that comes down to. Right. Ultimately, because there's absolutely no reason that we couldn't be talking about a Facebook game that you paid $15 a month for or right. a Facebook game that you paid $40 a month for. And you just happen to play it on Facebook with other people who played $40 a month. I don't think anybody would be arguing. Nobody would be having this question at all or having this argument at all, if Blizzard said, hey, World of Warcraft is now a Facebook game, and that's how you're going to access it, and you can just use your Facebook friends list as the way that you organize your guild, and you still pay $14 a month, nobody right. would be sitting here saying they're evil because they're using Facebook. Well, no, it's not how they're, not that they're using Facebook. It's how they're, it's how they're using the platform. It's microtransactions. Right. It's getting people to pay for things 12 cents at a time that people have a problem with. Right. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And and I'm sorry. I think that ship has sailed because consumers have voted with their feet. Look at what happened with Dungeons and Dragons online. Right. DDO went from a nearly dying, dead MMO franchise to probably the biggest success story of the last six months in that world, entirely because they made this business model shift towards selling things 50 cents at a time instead of $15 at a time. Right. And they've doubled their player population, and they've said quite publicly that that game is just making a crap load more money than it ever made as a subscription service. So consumers want it. And it's not just like soccer moms who sit on couches that want it. It's hardcore gamers. People are playing DDO for 15 hours a week. Yeah, right? they want so, microtransactions, but do they want a, do they want a crappy game? Well, they, do they even care if it's a crappy game? Of course they care if it's a crappy game. You think Farmville's a good game? I think Farmville is the best game that's been offered up to that population to date. Okay. And I think that you're going to see better games win over them, right? I mean, look at the other things that are in the top ten list. Bejeweled Blitz, right? Which is a good game. Which is an awesome game, right? But you don't hear people complaining about how PopCap is the evil empire. Although, well, no, because well, I don't have to pay for Bejeweled Blitz and it's not preying on my need to press one more button. You're paying for Bejeweled Blitz because it's it's piggybacking on your addiction to market itself to everybody on your Facebook list every time you upgrade something, or I mean, every time you get a, a score. Only right? if I so, only if I allow it to publish. I only only pub- if you allow only if you allow it to do that. But if you turn off your FarmVille's ability to do that too then Farmville isn't going to make very much money anymore either because they need more players, right? And that's what PopCap needs is more people to go buy the iPhone app, which is what Bejeweled Blitz is. Bejeweled Blitz is the marketing platform for the iPhone app, right? Because it's yep. the other place you can play Bejeweled Blitz. And I think that Civ Network is going to be the marketing platform for Civilization V. I totally disagree. I think they're going to be largely unrelated games. I'm sure they are going to be. I'm sure they're going to be di- different games. But there's going to be a lot of cross-promotion. I mean, it's not like XBLA's, like the Toy Soldiers game, has anything in common uh, with the Match 3 game uh, of Toy Soldiers on Xbox. But clearly one was used to promote the other. There's a Match 3 game of Toy Soldiers? Yeah. You didn't know that? I've never, I've never even heard of it. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's a Match I've... 3 game of Toy Soldiers, and you Match 3, and you fight little wits... 
you have waves. It's like Space Invaders. It meets Bejeweled. You have waves of things coming towards you. I'm totally you. hooked. Sign me up. <laughs> I'll give you the link. But they're very different games, but it's clearly being used uh, by the developers to market uh, Toy Soldiers, a game that very few people know about, knew about until that so, came along. So I will, just, I mean, I know we're running out of time, but I, yeah. I will defend Farm Mill to say this. Farmville is, at its core, a strategy game, which in groups of people that are really playing it are bringing together hundreds of people in shared efforts who would otherwise not be playing any game at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see my wife play it, and she has a group of 30, 40, 50 people that she interacts with every single day because of this game that she would otherwise just simply not even be talking to. Right. right, and so its goal is different. The goal isn't yeah. the same as, as uh, you know, a Raf Coster mastering a system get the fun that way game. Its goal is to actually encourage player interaction more than anything else. That's the core of the game design, mm-hmm. and everything in the game design is really built around talking to your friends and getting them to help you and helping them, not to actually selling you stuff. My wife has has not spent more than $50 on Farmville in a year. Right? I don't consider that some sort of evil addiction. It's not like she got hooked on crack while I wasn't looking. Um, but she's played, I can't even imagine how many hours of it. Right. So I, I, I see it as remarkably good at what it's doing and in no way some sort of evil nefarious scheme to, you know, I don't know, corrupt our children or something. <laughs> I think you have blinders on, Julian. Okay. It's all about corrupting my children. I take it back. Yeah, I, I think I think it's going to lead. To, I think there are, there's a great risk that this will, that the, the if the business model takes hold, uh, I mean EA is already moving into here. Uh, the, the business that, model has sailed. Right? Yeah. It, it, all the early right. models for Facebook pricing for social game yes. pricing failed, and this is what this is what works, right? Right, and you're going to see every MMO go this way. You're going to see more. I think you're going to start seeing every other kind of game go this way, and I think you're going to start seeing more and more strategy games go this way, where everything's free to play. And when you want to play a game against a friend that lasts three days, you're going to pay fifty cents to start that game. And that will have uh, one more reason not to go online. Wouldn't it be great if everybody in the world could get Dominion's three for free, and it cost fifty cents to start a game? I'd play all over that. They should charge to get, to get Bruce's manual. Wait a second. Hang on. I, I, I'm really skeptical, though, that you're going, you're going to be getting games like that produced to service this business model. That's that's. I mean, that's that's where my that's where I'm. Really you're, at, you're out of your mind. Look at look at look at what's happened at Turbine, right? Look at the money that's being invested by Firaxis and Civ Network. That's exactly what they're doing. They're developing AAA level titles that are completely free to play. To charge you a dollar at a time. Yeah. Okay. I mean, all, yeah. All this, all this money is being invested to chase after this. Okay. Great. Um, you know, it's a gold rush going on. Fine. Uh, but right now, we've got Farmville to point to, and the only thing we can say in its favor, really, is that it's made a shit ton of money, and a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise be playing games are playing it. I fail to see that either of these are particularly. I, I fail to see how these are unequivocally good. I, I, I think having more people playing games is an unequivocal good. I think it's good to have people playing more games. There's always a chance that will lead to other people playing better games. I'm not saying it's guaranteed. These people are not going to be going from Farmville and then say, well, this is good, but I need something meatier. Maybe I'll pick up Harvest Moon, uh, for example. I can't see that happening. 
No, but they could pick up Bejewel Blitz, and then they go on to play Plants vs. Zombies, which my wife just finished. My wife, who has not finished a what I would consider a real game since Mist, just finished Plants vs. Zombies entirely because of Facebook. I love this dismissive tone you have when you I, talk about your wife. She hasn't done anything since, no. et cetera, but... Okay, so what, what's the real game she's going to play after now that she's done with Plants vs. Zombies? I'm actually going to turn her on to Greed Corp. I want to play because I think that's a great couch game because there's no hidden information. Yeah. Greed Corp. I mean, we were going to talk about it, but we uh, didn't have the time uh, or the inclination <laughs> to really get everybody uh, into it at that time. I do want to... We had a good discussion, guys, about uh, what happened to GDC and all the debates going on in the field of strategy gaming. I do want to conclude on a couple of notes. First, the... Steam code for King Arthur. I had dozens of applications for the uh, King Arthur draw. I drew the winner uh, earlier this afternoon. The winner is Tim James, someone I actually sort of know from the Quarter to Three forum. So congratulations, Tim. I sent you your code. You seemed to appreciate it. And I hope you have fun with King Arthur. Um, I don't think we'll ever talk about it on this podcast, but you never know. Second, we have uh, PAX coming up, uh, not this week going on now, but next week. And it's really hard to plan much of anything. So here's what we're going to do. Um, Julian and I are going to be available for a brunch on Sunday. Sunday's, of course, the last day of the show. Uh, we're still working the location of the brunch. Now, brunch isn't as much fun as big drinks, but bear with me. Uh, so we'll have a brunch. We can sit down for coffee. Everyone loves coffee. We talk about uh, the show, and if you come, I may even have a little uh, chachka for you, or chachka, or if you pronounce that stupid Yiddish word, chachki, uh, uh, for you if you come. Uh, I have the lo- I'll hopefully have the location by next week's show, having my friends scouting good brunch areas in the convention center. You never know who will turn up. Uh, if you do want to meet me for a drink, however, um, please send me an email at troy.goodfellow at gmail.com, and maybe we, whoever's interested in the drink, we can coordinate together, and we can meet for one of the many billions of parties and other evening events uh, that I'm trying to make time for, because this is a work event for me, and it's important that I do all these other contacts as well. Not that I don't like you, uh, just that I'm not very good at planning stuff. You hate people, let's be clear. I hate you people. Oh, that's true. You said it, that earlier. It, I did, because it takes forever to get you guys organized. Good Lord, you brought Rob you don't on. do a podcast with Troy, you're his friend. Uh, yeah, it would just be all about you. Let's why I should do a whole month of podcasts, why I hate Tom, why I hate Bruce, why I hate Julie, <laughs> why I hate Rob, and why you all make my life so miserable. Next week's show, we're going to talk about Command & Conquer 4 and Supreme Commander 2, the two big RTSs of the month. What do they bring to the table? Uh, how has Supreme Commander 2's retreat from the super hardcore to something more traditional affected its basic design? And Command and Conquer 4 moving to a more MMO class type model. Uh, how is that going to work out for EALA? Rob, Julian, say goodnight. Good night. Good night, everybody. I'm going to get so much hate now.